Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December the 20th, 2018. This is episode 2350 of the Survival Podcast. And I'm a guy with numeric pattern disorder. Like I always notice patterns and I want numbers to be certain ways. If you look at, if I were to let you look at my bank account, you would see that every, every single time I transfer money, it's always an absolute even number. If you looked at my purchases of gasoline, it was either going to end on a full dollar amount or 50 cents. Or if I tried to squeeze a little more than I could in there, maybe 75, but it will never be like 63 cents. I like even numbers, right? I like things to be, I don't know why. I'm a OCD a little bit on it. So 2350 makes me smile today because it will be the last show. Of 2018. There will be a Christmas special out for you tomorrow. There may be some rewinds. The Christmas special itself will be a rewind because uh, it's a classic show we've done ever since the very first year, all the way back in 2008. We took a survivalist view of Christmas and the history of Christmas in the United States. So this is the last time we'll get together. And since it's the last time we get together, it ending on 2350 just feels good. I don't know. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, normally this is a listener calls show, but Guys, I'll admit, I'm doing a little bit of a sideways skid into uh, into screw-off land uh, with my Christmas shutdown. I am ready to be done for the year. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing a expert counsel Q&A show today, and I think that makes my life a little bit easier. So we have all your stuff for the expert counsel. I did shake the piker tree, and a hell of a lot fell out of it in the last week, so we have a good lineup for you today. I've got Decluttering Your Life During the Holidays from Gary Collins. I think this is a good all-around all uh, question for Gary uh, on, on our lives in general, especially preppers. We can get a little bit too much clutter in our way. Building your off-grid solar over time in kind of a modular ad hoc way over time with Sean Mills. Building wicking beds and fertilizing them with Jeff Lawton. Dealing with a cat that begins spraying in the house for Dr. Kelly. The best places to sell handcrafted items online with Nicole Sauce. Getting kids to eat more of their meat, not more of their vegetables, more of their meat with Keith Snow. End of the year financial advice from, you guessed it, John Pugliano. And I have a question on my thoughts on the Ruger American Ranch Rifle and Caliber Choices. We'll get to all of that in just a moment. Before we do, let's take a look at this day in history. We're going back to, well, there's probably a few of you out there that even remember this year. Uh, you're getting up there, but you're around. Uh, 1957, that's before my time. On this day in 1957, the king himself, Elvis Presley, is drafted. On this day in 1957, while spending Christmas holidays at his Graceland uh, residence, um, rock and roll star Elvis Presley receives his draft notice for the United States Army. With a suggestive style, one writer called him Elvis the Pelvis, a hit movie, Love Me Tender, and a string of gold records including Heartbreak Hotel, Blue suede shoes, hound dogs, and don't be cruel. Presley had become a national icon and the world's first bona fide rock and roll star by the end of 1956. As the Beatles' John Lennon once famously remarked before Elvis, there was nothing. The following year, at the peak of his career, Presley received his draft notice for a two-year stint in the Army. Fans sent tens of thousands of letters to the Army asking for him to be spared, but Elvis would have none of it. 
He received one deferment during which he finished working on his movie uh, King Creole before being sworn in as an army private in Memphis on March 24, 1958. After six months of basic training, including an emergency leave to see his beloved mother, Gladys, before she died in August 1958, Presley sailed to Europe on the USS General Randall. I'm going to pause right there for you non-military types. He did not go to six months of basic training. He went to basic training, and the total six months included his basic training and his skill set training. We call that AIT, right, in, in the Army today. Just, I, I can't leave that alone. I have to correct that. You have somebody writing this article that doesn't understand the Army. Anyway, back to it. Uh, for the next 18 months, he served in Company D, 32nd Battalion, uh, 3rd Armored Corps in Friedberg, Germany, where he attained the rank of Sergeant. I'm going to say there was a little nepotism going on, or generally people don't attain that rank. Uh, in two years, but even at the time, I would say. But let's just let that be. For the rest of his service, he shared an off-base residence with his father, grandmother, and some Memphis friends. After working during the day, Presley returned home at night to host frequent parties and impromptu jam sessions. At one of these, an army buddy introduced Presley to 14-year-old Priscilla Brillou, whom Elmas would marry some, some years later. Meanwhile, Presley's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, continued to release singles recorded before his departure, keeping the money rolling in and his most famous client fresh in the public's mind. Widely praised for not seeking to avoid the draft or serve domestically, Presley was seen as a role model for young Americans. He was discharged on March 2nd, 1960, after two years of service. Um, the, the thing about this, and the reason I kind of wanted to bring this up today is, what was going on in the world in 1957? that would require a draft? The answer is, they didn't have as many people as they needed to serve in the Army during peacetime. This is not the Korean War. It's not World War II. Not Vietnam. Um, the draft was not just something we used to do for wartime service. Uh, it was a thing that could happen to any young man at any time, including in times of peace, to be conscripted into service. Um, Elvis, for his part... I think what I admire is not that he did it in of himself doing it, like to like say that this is a good thing or whatever, but that he did not allow his fame and money to have him be exempted from it. Uh, I respect that. I also think that young people today specifically do not understand the generations that come before them in many ways, this just being one of them. This was something I didn't know until I looked deeper into Elvis's life some years ago myself. I really never realized there was a peacetime draft in the United States. And it made me understand, you know, people from my grandfather's generation and my great-grandfather's generation better. And I realized there's there's a lot of generational gaps with things that, that make sense. Recently, my wife was speaking to a younger person, I won't say whom, uh, but she was lamenting that, you know, she didn't think it was a big deal that she was routinely, you know, eight or nine minutes late for work. That's just not a big deal. And my wife said, oh, 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 absolutely it is. And she couldn't even get her head around the fact that, like, this is actually a thing. Like, like, you, like that's actually not acceptable. Well, I just stay another eight or nine minutes late. No, 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 that's not the point. And I think that that we've had this over the generational uh, time and, again, you know, changing of the generations. Some of the th changes, I think, are very positive, uh, letting go of a lot of prejudices, being open to new ideas, etc. But I think we've lost a lot, too, with just basic common decency and a sense of respect for other people. 
And uh, I, I don't think that's, that's a good thing at all. And when you look back to this time, you can find a lot going wrong in America in the 1950s. You really can. But one thing people did have was a sense of respect and honor. And it's something I'd like to see us kind of go back to in, in a lot of ways. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, the main discussion today, which is your questions for the expert counsel. We'll start out with Gary Collins on decluttering for the holidays. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the SimpleLifeNow.com, where I discuss all things simple living, living off the grid, travel trailer living, nomadic lifestyle, health, wellness, you name it. Make sure to go to my blog there. There's a lot of ton of free information and probably some of the questions you guys answer. You might find the answer there and sign up for my newsletter. Then you'll know when I'm putting out some good information. Um, today I want to discuss decluttering the holidays. I'm writing this in my next book of the Simple Life series called Decluttering Your Life. The holidays are chaos in America. You know, it's where our consumerism and bad spending habits just come to a head. And then not to mention our gluttony. We just stuff ourselves silly with food and spend money we don't have. Not a good combination. And are you noticing that the holiday advertising bonanza is starting earlier and earlier every year? I make a joke that eventually they'll start advertising in January for Christmas of that year to make sure you don't miss out on anything. And heck, Black Friday lasts, what, two, three weeks now, it seems like? It's never ending. The holidays can be very, very stressful for people. And most of it is purely, purely done to ourselves. We do it to ourselves. Self-imposed. I'm going to give you some advice that I started decades ago. I have been following this train, especially it's primarily for Christmas. I tell my family I did this, oh gosh, I want to say I was in college in my early 20s, or I might have been just in the military, and I was at the mall the night before Christmas, and it was absolute mayhem. I saw two people run into each other, cars, fights, people losing their mind, and I looked at my friend, and I just went, what are we doing? And the mall was packed, people just, oh, misery. So I told my family, I have better things to do. I'm not being selfish. Please do not get me any gifts. You know, I'm not going to buy you any gifts. Bah humbug. Oh boy, here we go. Gary's a big stinker. No, what I said is we will go out to dinner as a family. We'll go, uh, you know, before Christmas, before the crowds hit, or we can go after, after everything's done and the crowds die down. You guys pick the place. It doesn't matter what it is. I'll pay for it now. And at first, they kind of gave me the look like, huh, okay, that's great, son. Boy, talk about lazy. And now, after all these years, my other family members do the same thing. They do what I do, and we all go out for dinner for holidays, or we'll go, they'll take us, you know, take us out to dinner. It works out really well. You know, you get to spend time with family. It's less stressful. You don't have to worry about shopping, gifts, getting gifts and cringing if you don't like it, trying to return it and all that just nonsense. So that's my tip. I'm not saying you have to do it. I'm just saying I think it's an easier way to go. And now my family really looks forward to our going out for dinner every Christmas. So hope that helps, guys. And again, make sure to go to my website, thesimplelifenow.com. 
Next up, we have a question for expert counsel Sean Mills on building an off-grid solar system and not having all the money to do it right away and having to do it over time and thinking ahead kind of in a modular pattern. Sean, what say you? Hey, everybody. This is Sean with HackMySolar.com, and I've got an expert panel question from Eric in Michigan regarding incrementally building a solar array. Here's this question. How would you start and incrementally build and grow a solar system if plunking down 20000 plus on a whole system is not an option? Details. I'd like to invest a few thousand dollars a year into a solar system to provide some additional resiliency for power outage situations, learn about alternative electricity, and eventually work towards a nearly off-grid system. I assume a grid-tied inverter is off the table if having some electricity when the grid down is a primary goal and Michigan's net metering is in flux. What parts of a solar system can be incrementally added versus what needs to be bought quote-unquote big from the start? I'm in Michigan and have lots of full sun areas on the ground. Eric from Michigan. Well, hey, Eric, thanks uh, for the question. I get this a lot, and you are correct when you when you say that you can't have a grid-tied inverter and off-grid power when the when the grid goes down at the same time, and I've covered that in a previous answer. Um, but I will mention that the system that I have that runs my entire off-grid homestead was installed for $8,000 uh, over the course of 2012 and 2013. I did all the labor myself, uh, so that's just component costs, and many of those components are actually cheaper today. So your $20,000 number is, is probably what you'd be looking at to replace a standard uh, home, but you, you can do it for cheaper. Um, it sounds like what you're doing is transitioning an existing property from on-grid to maybe off-grid in the future. And so I understand there's some different uh, things to take into consideration there. Uh, that being said, in my experience, the only thing that's really a one-time deal is your wiring. Your solar array can be expanded. Battery banks can be expanded. Combiner boxes can be upgraded. Charge controllers can be configured in parallel, allowing you to expand uh, your charge capacity nearly infinitely. Uh, but if you need bigger wire, you can't use the wire that was there. Uh, and if you buried the wire in conduit or ran it through your attic, etc., uh, that's labor and materials you're never going to get back. Uh, ditto for battery cables. The stuff that the electricity is running in really needs to be sized for the end game at the beginning. Uh, and then, and then, um, you know, the other parts can be upgraded over time. The inverter could also be a one timer because you do want to size your inverter to the need on the consumption side, which normally wouldn't change that much just because your array got bigger. That being said, in your scenario, that might be the case where you're adding more things from your on grid to your off grid system over time. Uh, one caveat there would be going from on-grid with off-grid backup to fully off-grid. In that scenario, you'd, you'd likely want an inverter charger uh, that you could wire your generator to, which would allow for generator charging and AC use simultaneously. Uh, so if you're going to go that direction, because the inverter is going to be a big part, you might decide to plunk down the money for the bigger inverter at the beginning. So the other thing to remember is that parting the system together over time does eliminate bulk discounts, 
some free shipping opportunities. So likely it's going to result in a total uh, investment that's larger than doing it all in one fell swoop. Uh, so with all that background, let me tell you about a friend of mine who asked a similar question. And here's the actual growth plan that I put together for him. Phase one, double-lot battery cables, two 12-volt GC2 batteries, one 300-watt solar panel, one 30-amp MPPT charge controller, 100 foot of six gauge wire for the run from the solar panel to the charge controller, and that's actually going to be doubled up. So we're going to have two uh, negative and two positive wires in that run. He's only about 15 feet, so that 100 foot is going to be plenty uh, to double up. A 3,000 watt 12 to 120 inverter, um, lumber and connectors for the ground for the ground mount. Um, and then, you know, he might want to go ahead and get some solar panel connectors. And those are different based on the type of panel. The total investment for everything I just mentioned is less than $1,200. Uh, and the inverter is the single largest purchased at 400. And you can find those sometimes on sale for closer to 300. This provides on average a thousand watts per day of usable energy. And for his purposes, initially they were just going to be charging a laptop, a phone, some lithium AA and AAA batteries, and making some ice with a small ice maker uh, for keeping food items cold in a small cooler. The lighting is going to be accomplished during phase one with battery powered LEDs. So phase two, he's adding three 300-watt panels, and he's wiring those in a two-by-two two configuration into a six-slot combiner box. So the two-by-two two com, uh, configuration means two panels in series and then two series wired in parallel. The combiner box uh, allows you to combine multiple series of panels into a single run to the charge controller. We also want connectors, and again, those can vary depending on the panel style. The charge controller we selected in stage one will take double the voltage and double the amperage of a single panel, but not triple of either. So that two-by-two two configuration allows us to quadruple the incoming wattage without stepping up our charge controller. We're also going to add two more GC2 batteries with battery cables. Now, I'm sure most of you have heard that you aren't supposed to add batteries to an existing battery bank, but you definitely can. The only concern here is that if you have a cell that goes bad in the original bank, it impacts every cell in the series. So an old battery with less capacity will cause newer batteries to wear out faster because they're never going to get to their full charge. Now, let's say, for example, you've got a 12-volt battery. It fully charges at 14.8 volts, but it can only get to 14 because one of the cells is bad. Well, the other batteries that you wire in with it, even if they're perfectly brand new, they're only ever going to get to 14 also. So if you don't charge the battery up all the way, it goes bad faster. But the reality is if you take care of your batteries and you check them, you can you can forget about that advice. If they're going bad, replace them. If they aren't going bad, add to them, totally guilt-free. Uh, now, in this scenario, phase two was closely following phase one, so we really weren't concerned about bad cells. The cost of phase two was just under $1,000. When he was done with that, he was able to add a shallow well pump, um, the electrical portion of a propane water heater, which controls the exhaust fan and the igniter. So the heat comes from propane, but the exhaust fan and the igniter are electric. Uh, he added a 20-inch box fan and some actual hardwired interior lighting fixtures, as well as a Wi-Fi router. 
Now, phase three is where he goes big time. In phase three, we're adding eight additional panels. We're adding a Midnight Solar Classic 200 charge controller, a 3,000-watt inverter charger, like I mentioned earlier, and six Rolls-Surette 1450 series batteries to replace the four existing GC2 batteries. Uh, we're going to also add a Harbor Freight 7K generator in this phase, and when you add in the lumber for the mount and the panel connectors, you're looking at right about $7,000 for phase three. But this allows him to add a small AC unit, an AC fridge, a small chest freezer, a TV with, you know, accessories, direct TV box or whatever, uh, a clothes washer, and most other things that you would expect to see in a normal house. Uh, he's charging all of his power tool batteries off of this system and so on. And the, and the generator is capable of running a full-size electric clothes dryer. So most of the year he's going to dry his clothes outside during the winter or when it's raining. He's got a dryer. He's going to hook it to the generator, and he's good to go. So at this point, he's all in for under $10,000. That's not counting the 30% federal tax rebate on everything but the generator. So he's really in for about 7200 if you add it all up with taxes and everything. And he's generating over 4.2 million watt hours per year, plus the excess he's getting off the generator while he's drying clothes. Uh, so I hope that answers your question and gives you some ideas of how you can incrementally build out this system. I appreciate the question, Eric. Uh, feel free, free to reach out to me at sean at hackmysolar.com if you need additional help. And uh, keep sending those questions in, guys. I enjoy answering them. Next up, a question for Jeff Lawton, Wicking Beds. And... Uh... Just pretty dedicated guy to uh, to answering your question. So he hung up the phone or turned off the recorder, I guess, is the way to look at it. And uh, they was like, oh, wait a minute. Ah, I left something out. So he called back and, and, and left the other half of it. So I got two emails with two different voice attachments. And uh, so I'm going to just go ahead and play them back to back. So that's what you'll... That's what you'll kind of catch as being a little off kilter there, but it just seems easier than kind of trying to, to, to meld them together and hide that fact. I just think it's actually cool that he cared enough to, uh, to make a follow up couple minutes of recording. So here we go. Jeff Lawton on Wicking Beds. Hi, this is Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia. And I have a uh, question here about Wicking Beds from, um, someone in uh, central North Texas. Um, They're asking about materials. Can they build a wooden frame with a pond liner? Yep, that works fine. Um, but just a little point on wicking beds, what we've found, because uh, we do a lot of them in the Middle East there, it is good to have a drain at the bottom that you can open up every now and again to completely dry them out for just a few hours or a couple of days so you don't have always a wet base to your soil because uh, it can get a little bit much being being wet all the time. So having it drained out so you have a little bit of aerobic action happening down the base is a good thing we find. You can swivel, have a little swivel, right? So you can swivel down, just have one exit point, swivel it up to set your level and swivel it down again. Now also been asked about um, this site doesn't have much access to water and you're filling up a tank once a week um, or you're filling up the beds once a week and you're expecting that water to last. On hot times, there may still be some evaporative loss that might slow down production. So I think if you just top them up once a week, which is suggesting it will work okay, um, but just to be on the safe side, you could set up a, a float valve 
um, you, you could set up a system so that inside the wicking bed itself you had a larger pipe uh, with a small cattle trough float valve in it. So when it got down to a certain level, it topped up um, from a reservoir tank that would only have to be um, a foot or two in, in vertical height above the wicking bed. So you'd have a self-topping system. Um, and then you just come out and put extra water in a reservoir or a tank reservoir that's above your wicking beds with a small small cattle drink trough or some kind of small drink trough ball valve, uh, which would self-regulate the, the water um, level in the wicking beds. That should be fine. Now, we're also asking about fertility. Obviously, it's a contained system, so you don't get out, outside influences from the know larger soil ecosystem so yeah you've got to bring it in so you have to bring in compost you have to bring in worm castings or other biologically rich life rich um, soil additions they're not just amendments and physical structure but they're actually alive comp good compost good worm castings or both um, or uh, liquid additions of compost tea, worm, cast, uh, worm, worm farm liquids, those sort of things. You've got to keep doing that, got to top it up. You've got to never forget that it is a container garden. might be a big one, but it's still a container garden, and it's not connected to the outside soil ecosystem, which has uh, more a, a larger, uh, broader effect than we generally think. But other than that, they're great and they really do save water, and there's nothing better. If it's really, really hot in midsummer, don't worry about putting a bit of shade over the top. I often do that in real hot desert conditions. You know, shade the gardens in extreme desert conditions. We heavily shade with heavy shade cloth, and we get uh, crops thrown through summer with wicking beds where nobody else is growing crops. So that's uh, getting production where nobody else does. You can't do better than that. Okay, thanks, um, and uh, glad to be of help. Hi, just missed a bit there. Um, I wanted to add to this uh, report because I realised that um, we're being asked about can you feed through uh, the water into a wicking bed. Now, you can, but there's a lot of organic material going through the water. You've got to be careful it doesn't clog up. But I have trialled, I wanted to share with you, using a larger feed pipe um, and converting that feed pipe into a worm tower. So if you look up worm towers, they're vertical worm farms. Um, you gain no uh, worm castings, but uh, all the water passing through the worm farm is worm juice, of course, coming out the bottom. And then that's feeding into uh, the water tank at the bottom of the wicking bed. But also you have holes in the side at soil level, so there's a certain amount going out sideways. And we're trialling that. And it seems to work quite well. So you're, you're feeding the worm tower with uh, food scraps. Um, you're gaining the uh, fertilization of the wicking bed. And uh, from what we've uh, judged so far, seems to work really well. Um, but it's still, the jury's out. Uh, I can't see why it won't work. If you have a large enough pipe, say 8, 10 inches minimum, uh, you're losing a little space there in your wicking bed, but you're gaining... Uh, waste stream fertilization through the uh, worm tower. Uh, good stuff from Jeff. I, I will just you know point out I have built an awful lot of wicking beds in the past few years, uh, generally tying them into aquaponic systems, and most of the time running them as flow 
through wicking beds where the water actually enters and then overflows and acts and it maintains a constant level and it acts as uh, a delivery of fertigation because of the fish water. Uh, it also acts as a massive filtration system uh, and, and bacteria, you know, good bacteria uh, housing. And so you have a very huge amount of uh, filter media. And that works very well as well. And I have seen that, you know, I just want to kind of add on to what Jeff was saying about, remember, it's a closed, not an open ecosystem. So it doesn't have all of the soil biology that, you know, what if you planted it in the ground? That's true, and it's it's also untrue at the same time, because over time, if you are doing a good job with these systems, all types of soil life and everything that would be in the ground ends up developing in your wicking beds. And in general, I find the soil health in a wicking bed to become better uh, than even well-maintained soil uh, just in the ground. Because whatever you put there stays there until it's broken down or used. It never goes away. It never leaves. I also want to completely and totally 100% agree with Jeff's assertion that wicking beds should be designed to be completely and totally drained. This is actually extremely important in winter climates where it freezes, something Jeff doesn't deal with a lot, because a tank that's full can have bulkheads uh, burst out of it if it freezes, uh, the bottom water level freezes, etc. So, you know, this time of year, my wicking beds are not running. I shut the pump side off to them. And I drain them. I drain the pipes. I drain the beds. I drain everything. If I'm doing any winter gardening during this time of year, and, and this year so far I'm not, but I, I will be again soon, I don't worry about them acting as wicking beds during the winter. Your evaporation rate is so low. Watering them once a week like you would water anything uh, is more than sufficient. The way I like to drain my wicking beds is I like to have the ability to set the level based on a stand-up pipe. So I take a bigger pipe, and it goes all the way to the bottom. We call that a media excluder. In other words, it keeps dirt from falling in on the stand-up pipe. There's an open gap in there. And then you look down, you have a bulkhead or a, a uniseal or something in the bottom of your wicking bed, and that pipe plugs into a fitting there, and it sticks up. And if that pipe is seven inches long from the bottom, then your wicking bed holds seven inches of water. You want it to hold an inch more? Throw a straight coupler on that piece of pipe. It'll hold about an inch more. You want it to hold less, pull the pipe out, put a shorter pipe in. You get it? So when you want to drain your bed, all you do is reach down there and pull that pipe out of the the, 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 uh, the coupler, and it drains all the way down, and there'll be a little bit of water in the bottom that won't cause any problem. If you really want to, if you're using a bulkhead, which is what I do, and then you'll have a slip and thread fitting that screws into that bulkhead. And that slip and thread fitting will hold about an inch of water in the bottom by itself. Well, if you don't completely ratchet that thing down super tight, you can reach down in there and unscrew it. And then you're, you know, you're talking about like a quarter inch of retained water in the bottom and it'll drain for you. You can set your drain to drain right underneath that wicking bed. Um, or you can set it to drain somewhere else. So the, the system I've recently built, Uh, all the wicking beds return to the same point. So water comes from a 300-gallon tank, and it's delivered to the wicking beds, and then they overflow back into that tank. So all I've done is I've got a hole in the ground, and I can shut the delivery side off so water doesn't go out 
I can shut the return side off so water doesn't come out the bottom of the tank. And then I can open that one pipe and all the beds drain to that one hole. So it's all done in a single open one valve, close another valve, and they all drain. Uh, and they will drain them to the level of the stand-up pipe. And if you want them to drain below that, again, you pull those stand-up pipes, they still drain to the same point of return. So if you're building a wicking bed, it's one thing. If you're building multiple wicking beds, if you can get everything on the same level, if you can use a common point of drain, common point of return, kind of po common point of delivery, you can make things really, really simplified uh, in your ongoing maintenance. Wicking beds, you should put time and thought into your ongoing maintenance because the point of a wicking bed is it is a hell of a lot more work in the beginning. So for it to be worth doing the extra material and labor and all of that, it should be a hell of a lot less work in the long term. And if you think about it, you can make them almost no work. Um, in my summer periods here where everything is dying in the heat, my wicking beds, I don't do anything. I just harvest. Throw some fertilizer in there. And that's what's really beautiful about them. Uh, let's take another one. We have a question now about a peeing cat for Dr. Kelly. Hi, Jack and all TSP listeners. This is Dr. Kelly here to answer all your furry pet questions. Today's question says, Dr. Kelly, our household cat of 12 years has started spraying and costing us a small fortune in flooring fixes. This behavior has never been present before, and the cat has lived in multiple households and lived with other animals. We have researched possible causes, and none seem to line up. Things we have done. Stopped being foster homes for cats. Only did this for four months and two cats during that time. Started keeping this cat indoors more as he is getting older and coming back less frequently. Took him to the vet, and urine pH was 8, and some blood was found in his urine. We are treating him for a bladder infection as of this week. Fleas were found on the cat, so we were treating those as well. We've had another smaller cat with us for the last year, but have never had a sprain or territorial issue. The cat does hiss at the smaller one from time to time, and I've caught the little one near his sleeping spot, which is in the vicinity of the spraying. What we are doing. We are getting a trail cam to set up inside and see who is actually responsible for this. We stopped being fosters when we witnessed the cat spraying some toys in a different area other than the sleeping spot, but the absence of those cats didn't seem to affect this behavior. We are looking for another temporary home for the cat, but we love him very much, and it kills us to have this problem. Hope you can help. Spencer and Jess from Minnesota. And they included a super cute photo of the um, the problem child in this. So hopefully this will give you some ideas that can help. And that's feeling inappropriate urination is a common and super frustrating problem. Um, it's often a combination of factors that play a role in the cause and a multi-pronged approach is needed to correct it. Um, it's important to first distinguish the type of urination that's taking place. Is it more often on vertical surfaces, like it was from urine spraying, or is it more often on horizontal, like the cat was urinating like normal, but not in the litter box? And this can help to sort out what might be causing the issue. And that's the big question is, why do cats do this? And medical reasons can cause it. I mean, bladder stones, which can be found on x-ray or ultrasound, can certainly do it. I mean, it's no fun to have rocks in your bladder, and due to discomfort, a cat may urinate outside the box. A urinary tract infection can also cause them to go outside of it. However, it's important to note that true bacterial urinary tract infections in cats with well-concentrated urine are extremely rare. I mean, it can happen, but it'd be odd. Now, bacteria don't like living in the high concentrations, but an older cat that has less concentrated urine, it might be possible. And urine cultures can help to rule in or out an infection, especially if blood is present, since blood alone doesn't indicate um, an infection. 
Now, speaking of blood, blood in the urine is one of the most common symptoms of cats with inflammatory cystitis. And it goes by many different names, but basically the cat gets stressed out, the bladder gets inflamed, and they hurt and pee blood. Um, this type of cystitis is really where the line of emotional, behavioral, and medical reasons all meet. And you're probably wondering, what does a cat have to stress about anyway? I mean, they sleep all day, they have buffets of food. I mean, well, cats have a lot to stress about, actually. Uh, other cats in their territory, whether it's in the house or just seen from windows wandering on the property, can be a big trigger. And it's great that you already realized that the foster cats were a potential problem. Um, some handle that, but others can't handle the coming and going of the other cats. And disputes with other permanent resident cats in the household can also cause problems. Um, cat relationships can change with time, and having the fosters, even temporarily, could have changed the cat relationship dynamic in your home. Now, making sure that all cats have elevated areas, such as cat trees or wall shelves, that they can escape to and get away from each other can help. Pheromone diffusers, such as the Feel-Away multi-cat diffusers, can help chill everybody out. The original Feel-Away spray and diffusers were designed to be placed in areas where there was urine marking, so this may be helpful, too. Um, there's an over-the-counter product called Zilkeen that helps to calm cats and dogs. It comes in capsules that can be sprinkled onto the food, and most cats actually really like the taste. Um, mine ate it without any suspicion. Um, Hearts, or I believe it's Hearts or um, Sargent, one of those, makes a calming collar that I do think helps some. Um, I would caution it for cats that have access to the outdoors because it doesn't have a quick release if they get caught on something, so that could be an issue. Now, boredom is another big stressor for cats, especially cats that were used to having outdoor time to roam, explore, and hunt. The endless buffet of dry food is convenient, but it's certainly less mentally engaging. Um, feeding high-protein canned food is the ideal, and you can use dry to put in treat balls that they have to bat around, or puzzle bowls, or dispensers like the cat at food tree, so they have to work for their food. Um, depending on your situation, you can also hide dry food and treats, sometimes on the cat trees and things for them to find. Ohio State has a website for the Indoor Cat Initiative that has lots of ideas on environmental enrichment for cats. Um, now, litter box management is another big area when it comes to inappropriate urination. The rule of thumb is one per cat plus one and at least one on every floor of the house. Now, lots of times litter boxes are housed in the laundry room or a garage where access can be limited or difficult. Now, never underestimate the sheer terror of shoes in a dryer to a cat trying to pee in a litter box. Um, multiple boxes also help if you have a cat that guards a litter box or prevents others from using it or allowing a cat to not have to wait for a litter box if they really have to go. Cats with stones, infections, or cystitis often feel like they have to pee all the time. And my favorite cat litter for these cats is Cat Attract, which comes in both a litter and a litter additive that you can just place in your current litter. It's a combination of herbs and stuff that help attract the cat to use the litter. And shockingly, as heavy as litter is, it even ships free on Amazon Prime. So that can be helpful. Um, some cats also prefer open litter boxes. Others like clothes, low step up into, clumping or non-clumping. You really sometimes have to provide a litter box buffet and see which ones they really prefer. And litter boxes should be scooped daily, especially for problem cats. And I know some cats don't care, but if they have even the slightest bit of a problem, daily is best. Um, and I definitely think getting a metal scoop to do the job will make your life so much easier. Um, now, what else can be done for these cats? Sometimes all the behavior modification helps, but it isn't enough. Um, cats with cystitis are often painful, and they may need pain meds during a flare to help them out. Now, there's also prescription foods that can help neutralize pH and dilute the urine by making the cat drink more water. Often, food change alone can make a huge difference. Um, it's particularly important for male cats as they have teeny tiny urethras, and it doesn't take much of a blood clot or clump of mucus to plug it up. And if it's plugged, they can't urinate. 
And if you've ever been stuck in traffic with a full bladder and no exit in sight, you can imagine what it's like for these poor cats that will often go 12, 24, or even longer hours before anyone notices they haven't urinated. Um, behavior modifying medications such as prescription anti-anxiety meds are sometimes needed as well for cats that are stressed out by housemates or other reasons. Um, these can be compounded into a flavored liquid that can be used as a dressing on canned food to just sneak it into them rather than pilling. Now, you'd have to discuss with your vet what would be the right option for your pet. The real problem cats end up on a combination of anti-anxiety meds and all the -the over-the-counter stuff to achieve success. And the final piece of the puzzle is what do you do with the spots that are already there? Getting rid of the smell is key to preventing relapse. It also prevents other cats from going on the same spot and creating urine wars. Um, That is a reality show you don't want to see at your house. So enzymatic products such as Nature's Miracle and Urine Off cat formula should be used with wild abandon. I mean, get a black light, check for urine spots everywhere. If you see a spot on the carpet, you want to treat out from the edge by two to three times past the mark of what you can see because the urine goes down and then spreads out underneath. If you happen to be painting, putting in a new floor at some point, you can also treat the subfloor with Kills Primer or paint to get rid of um, any remaining areas. Now, I hope this has given you some ideas to try and discuss with your vet, and hopefully with the right combination of environmental changes and meds, if necessary, you guys can all cohabitate pe- peacefully together. So have uh, thanks, Jack, and everybody else. Have a great week. Thanks. Bye. All right, good stuff from Dr. Kelly. A couple additions I'd have. One of the things I've noticed that that tends to reduce anxiety in cats, especially indoor cats that don't get outside and don't get to do this, is having some sort of like a cat grass or something like that that the cat can bite and nibble on and feel like it's got outdoor connections. Uh, Sometimes creating an outdoor contained space for indoor cats is a good idea, like kind of like a cat run or something like that. It just seems that they they need that grounding. I understand some cats have to be indoor cats only. Uh, We had one. Her name was Alice. And, uh, you know, we've always had indoor-outdoor cats and mostly outdoor. So they're like outdoor, 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 sort of indoor cats. Um, when we adopted her, the, the agency we adopted her from was very insistent on they don't they don't adopt cats out to people that let them go outside. And I was thinking to, about this this to this with the lady talking to me. I have no problem lying to you, but in this case, I don't have to because this cat is clearly an indoor cat. Uh, she was cross-eyed. She had about ninety percent hearing loss. She didn't see well, and she was about as dumb as a box of rocks. But she was a good little kitty. And we never had problems with her spraying. She was kind of a completely I-don't-care-about-anything type of animal. Um, but other cats that we've had, I've noticed that when they have access to fresh air, when they have access to fresh greens, when they have access to dirt, uh, they seem to be a lot more relaxed. And if they do spray, they spray the fence post instead of the, 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 the couch. And is anybody but me, when, when Dr. Kelly said urine wars, did anybody else think, I... I don't know want that happening in my house, but a reality TV show that involved like water balloons called urine wars. I, or what about like, it involves balloons, it's called urine wars, and it has to do with people that steal packages off of porches. That, that sounds like it'd be worth watching, but I agree you don't want it in your own home. Just some thoughts there, but like a pot of like a cat grass type of herb that cats like, uh, maybe even a little, give them a little bit lift, lit up, man. Give them a little bit of catnip once in a while. Maybe they'll chill out. Uh, with that, I have a question for Nicole Sauce on selling handcrafted goods. Nicole, take it away. 
Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here with a question from Dan. Dan asks, what is the best online platform to start out selling handcrafted goods? Details. I've been building some items in my workshop for my daughter, and when friends or family see these items, they rave about them and comment that there's not anything else like that on the market. While I'm sure that these are biased comments, I've started to build copies in my shop, specifically the height board and the toy box. The products are made from locally harvested dead standing spruce trees, hmm, that sounds kind of pretty, which I fall and mill and finish myself. I've had I've looked into craft fairs in my area but missed the Christmas crunch. What I want to know is what you think are the best platforms for online sales of this type of product. Also, should I be creating a website to show my creations? Should I sell direct from my website or simply link to other platforms? Thanks for your thoughts. So Dan, yes. The answer is yes. Yes, you should have your own website. Yes, you should try selling your wares on multiple platforms. And yes, you should talk to others who already do this. And carefully research shipping because if you're going to be shipping things, that's where the the bug can bite you in the expense department. And you should try craft shows as you move forward and decide really what role you want this to be in your life, right? Let's go back to the bigger picture here. Is this a side hustle you want to grow into something full time? Is this something you want to just try out and see where it goes? Is this something you want to keep small? Are you thinking of teaching others how to do what you're doing? Because harvesting trees and turning them into something cool, that whole process would be really interesting to watch on YouTube for what it's worth. And as you go, just think about, do you like doing it, right? So I say just yet. On a deeper note, I do think anytime you're going into something like this, especially if you're committing to producing a product and selling it, a website, your own website's a great idea. Because that's like your online resume. If you sell it directly on your website by putting in the WooCommerce plugin on on WordPress, for example, and then also have it on sites like Free Cat Craft Fair and other places, maybe even eBay, that might work really well. Uh, but if you don't capture your own traffic and start building your own community, <clears throat> when those sites change or when you learn about how you want your business to be, you don't have that direct relationship. So I'd definitely set up a website, at least start capturing email addresses and have some sort of thought about how you're going to communicate when you have new products available, that sort of thing. And then, sure, online platforms that I think work really well. I've seen a lot of success with Etsy. I've seen a lot of success for things like this on eBay. And then free craft fair is a good one. However, yours is a heavy item. And so I kind of thought about that. I have a friend who makes giant Jenga games and cornhole and all this other stuff. And his wife is an interior decorator. And so they make interesting crafty things locally. And where I've seen her have the best success is Facebook Marketplace. She started just by showing her things on different communities and groups and not in a spammy salesy way, but like, hey, this is really cool. This is what I'm doing. I'm making a, you know, a, a, a wood burned checkerboard or whatever. And then over time, she decided to launch a store. And when she launched a store, she just mentioned it in passing on those communities. And that has been really helpful for her. So every time they build a cornhole game or giant Jenga or anything that they're doing, they'll put a picture of it out on Facebook 
And then they're clear about how you can order it, right? And then they get a bunch of orders. I was just talking to her husband yesterday, and he said about a week ago, because Christmas is coming, all of a sudden, like tons of orders. So I would definitely look at Facebook Marketplace. If you ha- if your Craigslist is good in your area, put it there. It can't hurt. We have something called Go LSN in the South that works pretty well. So just look at those. So I guess summary, Etsy, eBay, Free Craft Fair, Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist, Go LSN, or whatever you have for local sales. And then I have some additional thoughts about this. Once you try this, you're going to notice that it's hard to manage them all. And so what you want to do is evaluate what's going well, what works well for you, and then what doesn't. Don't be don't be shy about just cutting it if one of them just sucks. If like eBay's getting you nothing, screw it. Leave eBay, right? Choose the ones you can manage. Set it up so you know, okay, this is how my inventory is going to be managed. If I have a bunch of sales on Etsy, I need to like shut them down on the other ones, that sort of thing. Just be evaluating and make sure whatever you decide, however many you manage, you can manage them all. Because if you are on free craft fair and then a bunch of orders come in and you don't notice because it went to your spam, that makes customers angry and that's not good. The other thing is build your social network. And something as visual as what you're doing, I'm thinking YouTube would be really an interesting avenue for you, especially if you can do short videos that are snappy, informative, and highlight your products and and the way you're doing it. Because the way you're doing it is different than how most people make these kind of uh, crafty furnitures. Instagram comes to mind. You know, Jack's really been building his Instagram, but Instagram's great when you're highlighting something visual. I was thinking about Pinterest, but that seems like I haven't really cracked the Pinterest nut beyond like, here's my recipe. So I don't know. I'd give it a try and see if it works and then be a good community member in the communities you join, right? Like if you're on Etsy, be a good Etsy community member. And that just means go in there with that servant warrior mentality where, yes, you are selling things, but you're also there as a resource. Finally. Great photography is worth its weight in gold. For something like this, if you can get really good pictures, however you do that, whether you do it, whether you hire somebody to do it, that sells your product more than anything else. We recently went through and did some better photography at Holler Roast, and it's made a huge difference. And then lastly, have fun with this. This sounds like something you love to do. Have fun with it. When it starts not being fun... Yeah, or if it starts not being fun, evaluate that carefully. Okay, Dan, I hope this helps. Feel free to email me, Nicole at livingfreeintennessee.com. If you have follow-up questions, that's Nicole, N-I-C-O-L-E, at livingfreeintennessee.com. There is no H in my name. If that's too confusing, just go livingfreeintennessee.com and fill out the contact form. That goes to me, too. TSP. I want to say something. Thank you so much for a great year. This has been my best year ever. And a lot of it is due to you guys. I've heard from a few of you who missed out on Jack's bourbon cooled bean that they hope to get uh, something when I release it again. I have been talking to my importer. I'm not exactly sure when they're going to come in, but when they are, I will send a notification email. You can sign up for that over at hollerroast.com. And, I mean, if you want to try a great new coffee every month, just sign up for the Coffee of the Month Club. But don't forget your MSB discount. Jack, thanks for keeping your podcast interesting and informative. It's amazing that you keep that going year after year. I love listening to it. And thanks for building this awesome community. I hope you get a really good rest over Christmas. Okay, everybody, Merry Christmas and make it a great week. You know, I know that every time... um 
social media comes up, I sound like a broken record admitting that I'm an idiot for not having been on Instagram for the last 10 years. But I am an idiot for not having been on Instagram for the last 10 years and in only building Instagram over the last few months, building up a few thousand followers on Instagram. The interaction level on Instagram is huge. I would definitely, with a business like this, be on Instagram and Pinterest. Uh, Pinterest is an easier platform to drive traffic with, but I think that I've noticed that Instagram is a much more interactive uh, platform. The, the good news, when you start thinking, well, I got to be on Instagram, I got to be on Pinterest, I got to be on Facebook, I got to be on Twitter, you know, it's the same thing. You cut and paste the description that you're doing with it. And you just do it. And if you, you know, you, you know, if you, if you can get a spouse involved, like Dorothy running my Instagram is the greatest thing in the world. It really is. And what I need to get her doing is duplicating what she's putting on Instagram on Pinterest and duplicating that onto my Twitter account. The stuff that doesn't go on the Twitter account that, that, that goes there is, is innumerable. Um, because both of those other platforms have a, a strong draw with photos. And, uh, if you, If you get systemized, it doesn't take but extra one or two extra minutes to do these extra platforms. Um, and I think that would be, and I completely agree with Nicole on the, the different platforms to sell on. Put your shit everywhere and then put your attention on the ones that actually sell. Um, and I can tell you, selling on Facebook is, is pretty powerful, um, especially when you don't straight up try to sell so much but I've seen people that do that are very successful I know one guy that makes knives I actually just emailed him about a knife he owes me um, and he just has a page that he puts all his knives on and he puts here's the latest knife I've made this is how much it costs message me if you want to buy it and you know he's He's busy enough that he offered to barter me a knife, and I still don't have it. I mean, I'll put it to you that way. And the thing is, I can look at his Facebook page and see, you know, update sold, update sold, update sold, update sold. So this guy's just pumping them out. Now, he's good at what he does. There's another Facebook uh, thing that I'm following now because I'm a fish guy. I like tropical fish. It's called Guppy Train. They don't even post how much their shit is. They'll say, we got this new strain, or this is a strain that just had a bunch of fry. We're selling fry packs, or we're selling uh, you know, trios or whatever. Message or call for more information. And they are apparently, from some of the YouTubers I follow, very successful. And so you know, you'll get them to, I'm interested in that, and I'm sorry, they're all sold already. You know, And those are very, if you think about that, a knife maker and a guppy guy, those are very, very different Uh, scenario. So any place you can build a following, do it, and always make it. If you're when you're in a product business, if you make a, if you put a picture on Instagram, just no, it's you can you can buy this if you want it. Direct message me, whatever you know, link it by whatever you know. Always ask for the money. It doesn't have to be salesy, but you do have to close. So you can be like, this is the latest blah, 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 blah thing you can do, and here's all the cool stuff about it. If interested, direct message me. If interested, contact me. If interested, for sale, 300 bucks. It can, it's actually a very powerful thing to make it an after the fact rather than an upfront in your sales technique. And in the craft business, the beauty of the craft business is many times I have built this one. It's for sale. Or in the you know the guys doing the guppy breeding. We have a limited quantity of these. Let us know if you're interested. 
Now, I actually think the guppy train people are going a little bit overboard with making it difficult to do business with them, and they're successful in spite of that, not because of it. But a bit of it is useful. A bit of it is useful in finding that balance. I also agree if you start not liking your, something you're doing, examine why not just that you don't like it. What has changed? Is it that you're doing it too much? Is it that you're not making enough money doing it? Is it a piece of the, 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 the puzzle that's the problem rather than the whole puzzle? How do we eliminate that? How do we refine that? Can we make somebody else do that piece? Uh, what have you. Anyway, good stuff from Nicole as always. Uh, next up, we have a question for Chef Keith, an odd one. Kids don't want to not eat their vegetables. They don't want to eat their meat. I don't understand. Keith, what can you do? Hey, Chef Keith Snow with an answer for Leslie up in Alaska. Now, Leslie, uh, this is an conundrum that your 10-year-old stepdaughter does not like to eat meat, um, particularly being in Alaska where meat is such a big part of your diet and you guys uh, probably are hunting, and it's just a big um, thing there. I know uh, up in Montana as well, um, meat, particularly game meat like elk and deer is very common. And the people that we knew in Montana um, enjoying beef was a rarity. Most of the time it was game meat that they were eating. And uh, that can definitely, and I don't know, you know, there's not a, a ton of information here. So I'm going to just uh, guess as best I can, but I don't know what your 10 year old stepdaughter was eating before, if she's new to your family or why she's kind of developed some of these, uh, you know, complaints about meat and not liking the fat. But um, I have a daughter who's 16 and she loves meat, but if, if it's pink at all, she doesn't love it. She gets all freaked out. Or if there's chunks of fat on it. And I mean, those of us, like my wife will chew on the end of a, you know, a prime rib bone because she likes the fat. And I do too. I mean, that's a, it's a lovely part of meat, but some people, the texture can be a little chewy and just a little slimy and it can be a little weird. Now, um, I'm looking here and you say that you can get her to eat crispy bacon, no problem, no problem. And some lamb burgers. Now that's a cue to me. Lamb can be a little gamey and if she's eating those, it's probably not the gaminess that she's minding. It's probably the texture and or the seasoning or lack thereof. Now, um, what I would suggest is this. Um, it sounds like she'll eat ground meat. So I would look into making elk burgers. I'm assuming that you're having some elk. You might even have moose. I'm not sure. But I would look into making some elk burgers and elk meatloaf is a wonderful thing as well. Um, so by using um, a grinder and you grind the meat up, a lot of the odd textures are kind of uh, taken out. So the texture is a little more uniform. And most kids really like spaghetti and meatballs. And you can easily make elk meatballs meatballs, even if you have to add a little bit of um, breading to them, that's fine. You know, some eggs, seasoning, garlic, a little bit of Italian seasoning to make those taste wonderful. Maybe some Romano cheese. You simmer them in a nice tomato sauce. Most kids won't have a problem with it. So I do suggest that. Maybe some meatloaf could be a wonderful thing. We make Thai food all the time and we've used elk where we, you know, ground elk and we season it up with cilantro and onions and garlic and ginger and lemongrass and fish sauce, the whole thing. Um, chilies and that's a really, uh, might be a little too adventurous for your 10 year old, but the point is is that the meat, which, you know, elk tastes good, but sometimes it can be a little strong Strong, those stronger flavors tend to balance it out. Another thing, be a little careful trimming your meat. If she doesn't like the fat and you want her to eat it, just 
take a little extra time and try to cut off any uh, bits of fat. That way it's a little leaner for her. Um, and then consider some curries, you know, simmering beef like this or elk or lamb, whatever you have in coconut milk, again, with onions and garlic and cilantro, maybe some lime juice. This is something that, um, you know, turmeric, chili powder. So you could go kind of Thai or Indian. So I would look up some of those type of flavors and longer cook times. I would also suggest something like an Instapot or Instant Pot, whatever they're called, and see if you can slow cook some of these um, meat. That way they're very, very tender. Serve them with mashed potatoes and gravy. That might be an idea to help her out. And those, I would say, those are some of my initial thoughts here. And then just to use seasonings and salt and pepper. Now, one of the things that I've found through the years of trying to help parents make foods more interesting for kids, you know, I've had a lot of, like I've done cooking classes where we're actively cooking and we have parents there and kids and they don't like, they won't eat salad. My kid won't eat salad. Okay, well, do you feed them any salad? No, they won't eat it. So that's a big problem. Or they they will not eat broccoli. Well, do you serve them any broccoli? Well, yeah. How do you cook it? Well, I boil it and then, you know, I serve it to them. I mean, I'm not going to eat just boiled broccoli. So seasoning these things up is a good thing. And don't worry, I mean, unless your kid has a medical issue, um, a little bit of salt sprinkled on top goes a long way. And I'm not talking about iodized salt. I would talk about something like kosher salt, but like, you know, any kind of meat that has some seasonings on it, you know, you're using food science to almost to trick them. So a piece of meat that maybe she would turn her nose up at, maybe it's bland, maybe you didn't season it. And again, I don't know from your email, but it is a common problem under seasoned food. You just, you know, when you serve it, if you maybe put a little uh, sprinkling of salt at service, not before you cook it, because most of it's going to be lost. You want to season it and marinate it and all that kind of stuff too. But maybe when you slice it up and serve it to her, you sprinkle a little salt on it. That first bite tastes a tiny bit salty. That sends signals to the brain like, hmm, this is pretty good. And that's, you know, when you have bacon, it's salty, it's fatty. Um, So those things immediately get noticed by your tongue and send signals to your brain. Um, And that's the kind of some of the secrets, you know, to good food, taste, texture, salt level, sugar. The other thing is, you know, if you're doing maybe some curry, you could put in a little bit of coconut sugar to sweeten it up a bit. So those are some ideas, um, but I definitely would want to make sure that you're not serving bland meat because any of the problems that she has with it are only going to be compounded by sort of a lack of flavor. And I, and trust me, I've had, I've gone to people's houses where they've cooked meat, you know, in a pan or simmered it in water and it's overcooked and dry and just like, oh, this is rough. So you want to, you know, be a little more adventurous, I would say, but definitely try taking, here's another idea. Let's just say it's elk and a lot of people in Alaska are going to be eating elk and deer. If you simmer those with onions and garlic, a little bit of chili powder, and it could be mild chili powder and some tomatoes and make sort of a, you know, taco type dish and serve that on crunchy tacos with lettuce and all that. That's another way to get her to eat it. So we often will do a taco salad. We don't even use the chips. We just take crispy um, romaine lettuce and we chop it up and we serve the, the meat with some beans and spices over the top with shredded cheese and sour cream and the kids love it. Now, I know in the wintertime, um, there's not a lot of produce or it can be super expensive there, as you mentioned. So try and do some of these other things. Another growing up sloppy joes. I mean, not the most culinarily uh, adventurous dish, but it can be delicious served on a bun. I mean, uh, I had that plenty of times as a kid. Chili is a great thing. Um, all these meats lend themselves wonderfully to chili. 
into different soups. So I would uh, open up some cookbooks, make sure you're seasoning it up. And um, if you need to ask me any more questions about it, uh, Leslie, I'm happy to try and help. You can just email me keithsnow at gmail.com and uh, maybe we can uh, have your stepdaughter eating a little more meat. So with that, uh, I hope you have a, a great holiday season. Merry Christmas and take care. Uh, just a couple quick additions here. Eating burger, eating crispy bacon. Uh, what I'm hearing is a textural thing more than anything else here. Um, a lot of kids don't really like to chew on meat. So I think a lot of the suggestions Keith uh, gave you, whether that's why or not, go in the right direction. Things like sloppy joes, meatloafs, etc. Uh, I know my son was a picky eater. And like, if you took him to Chick-fil-A and got him chicken nuggets, he would pick all the little hard pieces, he would call them, which were the best parts, off the friggin' nuggets. The, the little you know parts that were like really crunchy, he didn't want those because they were hard. So kids have weird eccentricities at times that, you know, if you want them to eat the way you want them to eat, you need to deal with it. Well, the other side of this is something that, like, you got to be careful with it because you don't want to create a habit. Uh, that becomes a bad habit in life from a nutritional standpoint. But as you guys know, uh, I try to strive to be a very low-carb eater, and that is fine for this point in my life. However, when I was a, a teenager playing football and, and, and hunting on the mountains all the time, and all, I ate everything, and I was in incredibly good shape. Uh, you know, I was 100 and almost 180 pounds my senior year of high school by the time I got out, And you would have really struggled to find fat on me. Um, and that's why when a government says I'm supposed to weigh 165 pounds, I'm just like, you people are idiots. Um, but when you're a kid, you do have carb cravings. And, and I want you to think about like a grizzly bear. A grizzly bear who's getting ready to go sleep for the winter. Uh, the Kodiak brown bear you know, goes to the river and it gorges on salmon. But you know what else it gorges on? It gorges on berries and wild oats and stuff like that because that does put fat on for a bear. For kids, what they're gearing up for isn't hibernation, though sometimes the way they sleep you can think they are. They're gearing for growth. They're going to grow, and a shitload of the energy they take in is calories and carbohydrates. This is why you have kids that aren't very active, and unless they're ridiculous with it, like they're living on McDonald's or something, they're not fat and they're in better shape than you. The kids sit around eating Doritos and Cheetos and stuff like that and, and can get on, get on a treadmill and just put a guy that works out to shame. This is why the body's consuming a lot of that crap. So kids have a predisposition to want soft, easy-to-chew, high-caloric value carbohydrate-laden foods. This is often why the kid won't eat meat, but they'll eat macaroni and cheese with meat in it. Now, my son, again... Some of his pickiness. There were times he went through phases, because a kid will kill you for it. A kid, a young man will kill you for a, 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 a juicy red steak right now. I mean, he'll, he'll slice your throat to take your steak. But I remember him with uh, that macaroni and cheese, and, like coming back with a plate full of crumbles of meat, and he ate around it. So on some level, you know, don't they'll get over it in time. And they go through phases, so don't overthink it. But adding some carbohydrate, doing things like a hash. Uh, Chef Keith mentioned you know, doing a sloppy joe type thing. A lot of times if we take a soft, easy-to-consume meat product and we, can, we add a, a starch, 
that has the sugar that kids are looking for, even if it's not a direct sugar, indirect sugar, because it's all sugar. Uh, no matter what anybody tells you, uh, wheat is sugar. Potato is sugar. It's sugar, it's sugar, it's sugar. You can't change it chemically. It's effing sugar. A cup of potato and a cup of sugar is the same metabolically in your body. But it's okay when you're a kid. Um, so, like, you know, lamb burger? Really? How about shepherd's pie? Little peas, little carrots. Now you got some more sweetness. A little mashed potato, a little corn. We do a little layer thing there. We brush those potatoes with some butter. Bake that. Kick the broiler on at the end. Brown those potatoes up. All of a sudden, kids eating meat. And then just don't stress too much. And remember, there's nothing that motivates a picky eater like hunger. Because I'll, I'll tell you that the way this problem would have been solved by my grandmother is when you're hungry, you'll eat. And don't be afraid to every once in a while go a little old school on your kids as well. With that, i got one more question for you. Uh, this one is for John Pugliano on kind of end-of-year stuff, figuring out how to make some money going into the new year, uh, your investment stuff for the new year. Should we be, oh, my God, a disaster's coming, and the stock market's going to crash and go to zero, and we're all going to die. Because ah! some of that's being driven right now by the uh, the people that are always doing that. You know, the people that that's their only thing, the market's going to crash, they just constantly say the market's going to crash all the time, every day, and then when the market crash comes, they're like, see, those people are going into a frenzy right now. John, chill everybody out a little bit, give us some advice, end of the year, going into the new year, what we do with our money, man? Hello, TSP listeners, happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, season's greetings to everyone. I wanted to finish out the year by using this segment to give two general financial recommendations that you can think about over the next couple weeks and be able to hit the ground running as we go into 2019. The first bit of advice I have is for, oh, I don't know, 90, 95% of you, and that's that you really shouldn't be overly focused or obsessed with investing. And I'm talking about investing for anything, investing for your retirement, investing for your kids' education, or even different types of investing, investing in the stock market or real estate or cryptocurrency. I would say overall, by my experience of talking to many, many people over the years, that the vast majority of people shouldn't be focused on investing. They should be focused on the two prior steps to investing, which is learning how to earn an income and learning how to save what you earn. And that applies to virtually everybody. It doesn't matter if you're a 16-year-old with your first part-time job or whether you're 65 years old. If you haven't learned those first two steps to building wealth, then nothing else is really going to matter. Now, there's some good news and bad news there. The bad news is, is that learning how to earn an income in a way that's ethical and honest and fills you with satisfaction and in pride in what you do, well, that's kind of a hard thing. And in the few minutes I have here, I can't tell you exactly how to do it. And it's going to be different for one person than it is for another. You know, a couple episodes ago, Jack was quoting Mark Twain. And he said one of my favorite quotes, which is that the two most important days in your life are the day that you're born and the day that you find out why. Well, in a lot of cases, that finding out why you were born has to do with how you earn an income. In fact, I think the most happy people and most successful people I know are people that were able to combine their talents and abilities and their purpose in life into some kind of a revenue stream where they could make a living from it. But getting paid to do what you love is not something that's easy to accomplish. 
And unfortunately, most people never do. So what I'm going to tell you is start out with just learning how to make money and learning how to make an income. It may not be what you love, but you should work towards that goal. Start out by getting your foot in the door. Get a job in a field or some type of a career where you can make advancements. It's not going to happen overnight. It won't be easy. That's the bad news. The good news is that that other part of the equation I talked about, the saving, well, you know what? That is simple and easy. To be a saver, you simply have to start out by not spending everything you make. Now, that's very easy and very simple, but unfortunately, it's something that most people never accomplish. I know doctors that earn over $400,000 a year, but just because they're high-income earners, it doesn't mean that they have a great deal of net worth, and that's because they're not savers. Their lifestyle is no better than Joe Sixpacks, who goes out and lives paycheck to paycheck. Because that's exactly what they do. They make $400,000 a year, but they live a $425,000 lifestyle. So they can never get ahead. And so while it's very easy and simple to save, it takes discipline. And discipline is what most people don't have. Now, the other area that I wanted to give you some advice on, and this is really more in terms of a prediction for 2019, and my financial prediction for 2019 is that you should stop worrying and we are not going to have an economic collapse or meltdown. Now, I'm not saying that this market correction that we're in can't go longer and linger on for months and months. I'm not saying that this correction couldn't escalate into something worse and become a full-blown bear market and go on for the next 6 to 12 months. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you can forget about all the chicken little tinfoil hat conspiracy theories you hear about an economic collapse and your money not being worth anything or that we're going to go into some kind of a depression that's worse than what happened in 2008 or even in 1929. Now listen, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict the future. But one thing I can almost 100% guarantee is that we're not headed for an absolute market meltdown. Not any time in the near term and certainly not any time in 2019. Now, I'm not saying there aren't problems out there. I'm not saying that things can get worse. I'm not even saying that things won't slow down. But none of the data that I look at tells me that we're headed to a full-blown 50% or more correction in the stock market. Regardless of all the bad and negative things you hear about the economy. Right now, oil is trading for less than $50 a barrel. Copper has been very stable and around $2.70 a pound. 30-year interest rates are back down around 4.5%. These type pricing levels are very moderate based on historic norms. If we were headed for some type of a serious inflation, then things like copper and oil and timber and coal and all sorts of other commodities, then those prices would be going up and going up rapidly. They're not. On the other hand... If we were headed into a deep recession or depression, their prices would be dropping like a rock. And that's also not happening. The point I'm trying to make here is that we're not at either end of the extremes. Overall, the true valuations of things are pretty much straight down the middle. And that even includes the stock market. As I record this, the price per earnings ratio of the S&P 500 is about 15.75. Well, the average price per earnings ratio over the last near 100 years is right around 16. So despite all the fear and the panic you hear in the marketplace, 
the S&P 500 is not overvalued. It's pretty much right near, just a little bit below fair value. And if you look at overseas stocks or emerging markets, those price valuations are even lower, in some cases significantly lower. Now, I'm not saying that things are perfect, nor am I saying that there couldn't be a lot more risk of a downside going forward. But what I am saying is that none of the economic and market indicators that I look at are telling me that we're headed for a dot-com bubble or a Great Recession 2008 housing bubble. And of the multitude of bad things that could happen, it just doesn't look like to me that they're going to take place in the next 12 months. So my recommendation is, as we go into 2019, don't get sucked up into the paranoia. Remember what Jack says. TSP is for when times get tough or even if they don't. So quit worrying about the things that are very unlikely to take place and start working and improving on the things that are within your sphere of influence. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Good stuff from John, and I'll, I'll avoid chiming in on that. I don't think I really need to add anything. I think John's got it pretty much spot on. I have my own take, but I agree with the overall sentiment, and specifically with investing. Like There are times to, to get the hell out of the way of a coming train wreck, and, and if John or I see that coming, we'll tell you. And that doesn't mean you won't have any down days or anything like that, but when, if we see a 2008 coming, if we see a, a dot-com crash, we will scream, get out, get out, get out. All right, and that's that is instead of micro timing of the market and day trading, that's macro timing. That's all the indicators say: get the hell out. So get the hell out. It actually ain't that hard to do, um, but in general, you don't need to be sitting there like obsessed with the market. I, you know, I throw the term piker around a lot, um, and that comes from a movie called uh, Boiler Room, and it's about basically a stock market sales scam. But in that whole thing. There's a lot of kind of salesy stuff. That's why with salespeople it was a really, really popular movie. And there was one about not selling to women, and they didn't say it in such a nice way, but the guy said, well, why don't we sell to women? He said, oh my God, if the if the stock goes down, they're going to be on the phone with you flipping out. And you know what's even worse than the, than the guy, other guy that's not a trainee goes, well, what? He goes, if it goes up. If it goes up, they want to talk to you about it for hours. We don't have time for that. We have to bring in new business. And I think that's unfair to women. I really do. Um, but I do think there are two types of people with their investments. They're confident with their investments. Uh, they've done well with their investments. They've allocated their money for investments. They have redundancies. Uh, they have stop gaps to make sure that they don't, they're not going to lose that much money. And because of that, investing is a thing that's over here. And we look at it once in a while, and we discuss it once in a while, or we have a really good advisor that actually knows his shit, and we let them do it. Those are hard to find, but they're out there just saying. Um, then there's the other kind that are worried every time they turn Fox News. The market's down 300 points. The, the market going down 300 points today isn't a big deal. I mean, I remember when 300 points was a big deal. 300 points is barely a blip fart on, on, the, on the screen when you have a market that's in the mid-20,000s. Guys, I remember when people were like, do you ever think the Dow is really ever, ever going to hit 10,000? You know, when you have a Dow that was you know, in the 7,000s and you had a 300-point drop, it's a hell of a lot bigger of a deal, and it wasn't something to get your pants too wadded up about back then. 
There will be a major recession in our future. Do you know how I know? Because we've had major recessions in our past. And if you want to know what's going to happen tomorrow, look at what happened yesterday. But it's, I'll leave it there, and we'll talk about something a little more fun. And got a question from Jeff in Pennsylvania. Jeff says, hey, Jack, new bolt rifle. 5.56 or 7.62 by 3.9. Details, I'm really liking the Ruger American Ranch Rifles. I already own an original Ruger in 3.08. I can get one in 5.56, 2.23 that takes AR magazines. Or in 7.62, 3.9 that takes a Ruger Mini 30 mags. Both are reported to be very accurate, and I like the idea of having an option to use larger capacity magazines. I don't have an AR or AK, so I don't have any ammo or mags in either option stored up. My use would be for target shooting, maybe deer and coyote hunting, and just general survival rifle. It's also very likely that my 11-year-old son would be using it. Both are reported to be easy recoiling rifles, with the 5.56 being the lightest of the two. I live in Pennsylvania, and both are legal for deer hunting here. By the way, that's changed from when I was a kid. I'm glad Pennsylvania opened their minds. Uh, it was 25 caliber and above when I was a kid uh, to use on deer. Uh, while I know many will say the 223 is too small for deer, uh, many people say a lot of things, and many of those people should be told to shut up, or at least you should ignore them. So he says, researching has shown the newer bullet designs have made it acceptable for ranges under 200 yards. By the way, it's always been accepted. I've seen a lot of deer die to 22 caliber rounds. I'm just saying. I'll talk a little bit about the considerations there. But, yeah, it's always been the case that with the right bullet and the right shot placement, it's plenty to shoot a freaking deer with. Um, <laughs> uh, acceptable at ranges under 200 yards. It also seems that uh, it's also acceptable range, uh, reasonable range for the 7.62 as well. Uh, I guess the question comes down to ammo. It appears that really cheap bulk surplus 7.62 ammo is not really available anymore. So otherwise, the cost of the two seem pretty close. Walmart buy, Walmart buy me carries both, albeit a limited selection uh, of both. Typical deer hunting rounds have several more options. It does appear that there are many more American manufacturers of 223, and much of the 7.62 ammo is imported. Will availability be a concern in the future? What is your opinion? Thanks, Jack. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna come down here for you, and I'll explain why in a second on the 223. Um, I do not expect that it will become difficult to get 7.62 by 39 ammo in the United States. There's probably more AK-47s in the United States than there are in Somalia. All right? Uh, we like our AKs in the United States, even though, like, I think there's probably more AR owners. The, the, the AK club is a big-ass club in America. Uh, and there's been a lot of things like this, these little bolt guns and single shots and stuff like that that use that ammo as well. Uh, Wolf is probably the biggest uh, name brand that's selling, you know, imported ammo out of Russia, and they ain't going nowhere. Uh, and the Russians and us, we get along well enough for us to buy their shit. And we're going to keep getting along well enough for us to buy their shit. And don't worry, we're not going to have a nuclear war. That's not happening either. So we're, you can get the ammo. It is limited, and I do not like the 7.62 by 3.9 as a deer round as much as I like. See, there you go. Uh, the 223, and, and and I'll tell you why. Um, a lot of people say that the 76239, uh, and I'm just going to say the, the 762 from now on, and expect that you know I'm not talking about 308. It, 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 that it's about equivalent to the 3030 Winchester. From an energy standpoint, it's not far off. From a velocity standpoint, it's not far off. But it ain't. 
It, the two are not the same. You're looking at a 123 grain bullet in most situations with a 7.62 uh, in hunting capable rounds. So somewhere between 120 and 125 grains, depending on who's what you buy. It's deadly. It works. Its sectional density also sucks. Uh, with the 30-30, you're looking at generally 150 grains, and most people I know that hunt with the 30-30 use a 170 grain bullet. That's a fairly long for the caliber bullet. It's very dart-like and has a lot better ability to penetrate. We again we call that sectional density than a a 123 grain bullet of the same caliber. So they are not the same. They do not have the same ability to penetrate. Um, and the 3030 is you know kind of on the lighter end of accepted deer rounds in a lot of people's minds. Though you know what I always say about people with stuff like that. One, don't listen to them. But two is death does not come in degree. And there's probably been more whitetails that have gone into freezer camp via the 3030 than anything else in America, probably other than the 3006. Uh, those two rounds have probably put more deer together, uh, more deer in freezers combined uh, than the next 10 put together. So a lot of people, like I said, should just shut their mouths, stop running off, stop trying to be a forum expert. When we're talking about dead animals. All these rounds will get the job done. But you are at that edge when it comes to deer and that's a potential use for this rifle where better is what penetrates better in pennsylvania you're talking thick woods small openings here and there you can get a long shot it's not common and the number one concern that i have isn't just that the deer is dead in pennsylvania but the deer is trackable in thick buck laurel and things like that And for that, I want a hole that goes through. And the people are going, but a 223 is going to be blah, it's going to explode and fragment into nothing and stop. 62 grain federal premium trophy bonded tip or the federal fusion. Uh, the 62 grain, I don't remember exactly what the, the federal, you know, like the, the trophy bonded tip is from Barnes. It's basically the evolution of the trophy-bonded bear claw, which is my previous before they changed it to this. Federal has, has dropped the trophy-bonded bear claw and gone to the trophy-bonded tip. So now that's what I would recommend for the 223 and this. And then the Fusion has one that's like a, a, a I don't know who makes it for them, probably Spear, but it's a Federal bullet. They don't tell you who makes it. Uh, and it's the Federal Fusion. And those two rounds are both outstanding deer rounds. 22 caliber round at 62 grains is relatively long. It has a good set. Density. It is it, it, the, both of those rounds hold together very well, and if you focus on shot placement beyond the way that normally people think about, it, I'll get to that in a second. You're going to have a hole through the deer, and if you have a hole through the deer, you get a damn good blood trail. I shot a deer one year with a 357 Magnum, even though the hole went through the other side. We didn't find the bullet on the offside. I don't know where it went. It did not go out the other side of the deer. We found the deer, it was thick, it was dark. We had to turn light bars on a four-wheeler to find it, but we found that deer exactly where I said she'd be. I hit her, I mean, if I would, if you took a picture of a deer and said with a Sharpie, mark where you hit this deer, I hit that deer exactly where I said I hit it because with the light recoiling rifle, I actually saw the hair on the deer move when the bullet went into the deer. That said, that deer didn't bleed a drop to the point where it fell. And it only went 40 feet, if that. And I mean, it's 40 feet from where I shot it, and it was still hard to see because it was down in, in, in basically, I don't know, hell, like a holly, that holly, whatever that holly is that you can make tea out of is a lot of what was in the area. and just won't come to re-rate. Yapon yap, yap, holly, right, is what was that, that deer was laying in. It was really, made it really hard to see her. 
Uh, but she didn't bleed. And when we rolled her over, blood just poured out of that hole. So Pennsylvania, one of the problems I have with Pennsylvania rifle hunting is there's so much public ground and stuff like that, so many people hunting, deer get stolen. You shoot a deer, it runs down a little bit, so you hear another gunshot go off, and a guy claims he's the one shot the deer. It's really hard to argue if there's a blood trail from where you shot the deer to where the deer's land that, that, that it's their deer. And it does happen, and I don't like it, and this is one way. The other thing is some of the thick stuff up there makes tracking difficult. When there's blood spraying out and it's on the, along the buck laurel a foot off the ground, it's pretty easy to follow. So I just think you're going to get more of a through-and-through shot. Now, this is where I'm going to talk about if you're using these calibers for whitetails. 200 yards? Eh, probably. I'm more concerned with can you hit consistently at the range you're going to shoot at. And if you can, at 200 yards with it, that's fine. The shot needs to be a broadside shot. It needs to be in the heart-lung area. We do not need to be trying to break shoulder blades. And if we have the the classic front-on heart shot where the deer's facing you, and you're going to take low in the brisket shot, I have seen a 35 Remington at 20 yards turned by that brisket bone right down the side of a, of, a, of a small buck that my uncle and my father and I tracked for about nine miles in the snow. We never found it. The next year, a pretty nice eight-pointer was taken by a family friend named Mark, and uh, he, he called us when he was skiing. He said, you got to come see this. I think it's your deer from last year. And there was when he skinned it, you couldn't really tell, but when he skinned it on the inside of the skin, there was a scar that went all the way down the left side of the deer where this brown had turned and been under the hide and ripped long but never got in and never damaged any vital organs. And that deer was alive a year later, and I'm almost 100% sure that was the same deer. It was the oddest thing in the world, but if it can turn a 35, it can turn a 22, okay? Or it could turn a, 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 a 7.62 round. So I just, you know, I want more, uh, more bone cracking power out of a round. If I'm going to take shoulder breaking shots, if I'm going to take front end break, front end shots and all. And I'm going to tell you, I like to break shoulder blade because I know a deer with a broken shoulder and, and a hole in its lungs isn't going anywhere, but I don't want to take that shot with a 223. So that, that's the shot placement. Here's another reason I'm going to say the 223 for you in Pennsylvania. You want to hunt? You want to hunt places other people don't get to hunt? Do what I've said so many times. Get out in the summer. Go talk to farmers. Shoot groundhogs. For and the 223 is just beautiful for groundhogs. Next, the two rounds will cost you about the same in the store, yes. But if you take up hand loading, and I think over time you should, and when you're hand loading for a bolt gun... You're not going to have to load high volume. So inexpensive things like a Lee single-stage press uh, and, and a set of dies, and I can't remember the die, but there's a die set from them that comes with the crimping die, factory crimp die is what they call it. Um, you could do anything and everything with that, and you could set that whole setup to do your reloading for under 100 bucks. And uh, then you can start, you know, fire forming your brass, neck sizing only, maximizing the accuracy out of that gun. And I think you'll have it for the rest of your life or you'll give it to your kid and he'll have it for the rest of his and give it to his kid. Uh, Ruger makes really great rifles. And the, uh, the, the American uh, Ranch rifle is a great little rifle. I wanted to tell you, hey, look at... Look at the Ruger Compact Americans and things like 308, 65 Creedmoor, and stuff like that to do a little more. But you've got a Ruger American 308, so you've got that. I kind of wish in this platform with the magazines that Ruger would make this gun in 
243, uh, you know, uh, I really do. And, and 308, and uh, the whole family, 6.5, what have you, 7mm08, because all of those will drop right into an AR-10 mag. Um, that would probably require completely redoing the rifle, though, uh, because it's designed for the shorter action. It's not a short action, shorter. I don't even know what you'd call it, but your, your very short throw actions here, like 223 and 76239. So, I'm going to say 22 on that, 223 on this, and I think that's probably the best decision given your situation. I think that the 76239 in this rifle is fun to shoot, but I think it's, it's less versatile in what it can do for you than a 223556. All right. Hope you guys enjoyed that. I know some people will completely disagree with me on that, and uh, whatever. Uh, the ammo that I recommend for you, I do have a link in the show notes for you to where you can see it on Federal's website. It's exactly the round I'd recommend if that kid goes out next year and deer hunts with that gun. Um, it's the, again, the trophy bonded tip. Uh, it's a solid copper heel to that bullet and it is a sledgehammer. And as long as you can find it to the right types of shots, there ain't a deer that's going to stand after that thing goes into its lungs. It's not going to happen. They may run for a while, but they're not going to go very far. And remember the words of Jack O'Connor, not Jack Spearco, but Jack O'Connor, another very smart Jack, an animal with a hole in both of its lungs will run only as far as it can do what? And my friends and neighbors, that would be hold its breath. And I have found that that's not very far. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Guys, if you uh, like this show and the work that we do, you want to help support the show, you can do that by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Last-minute Christmas shopping is happening. Please do it through T-Spaz. It's a real easy thing to do to help us out. Uh, I have got for you guys today, I brought it around a month ago. I'm bringing it back around today because it's on sale 43% off Lewis Price. The Streamlight Stylus Pro Flashlight. It is just my favorite light. It's in my pocket right now. And the way that it carries in a jean pocket is awesome. It is it uses AAA batteries. I mean, you don't have any special Super 123, 186, whatever. AAA batteries. You get them everywhere. They're cheap. Uh, it has a good long life expectancy. It's nice and bright light. It works as a little cubiton for self-defense if you're so inclined. Big thing to me is it just right in the back of a pocket, clipped on, You forget it's there until you need it, and, and I really like that. I, again, I've been carrying these things for over 10 years, sold literally thousands of them to you guys. It's got 6,000 reviews on Amazon, 4.5 stars overall. There's a reason, and right now it's on sale for less than 20 bucks. Um, it's a great stocking stuffer. It's a great Christmas gift, and they are still arriving before Christmas. That's why I brought it back around at 8. Well, funny thing happened here. Uh, Nicole Sauce... Uh, came on and said she actually prefers the one that uses a single CR123 battery. And uh, she said because it's shorter and it clips inside the lame-ass non-pockets they put in girl jeans without risk of falling out. Now, I made a little bit of an innuendo in response to that. Uh, you can see in the comments if you want to. But then I said in all seriousness, what you want uh, then without the stupid battery is this. And I have a link, if you scroll down in my review of the Streamlight, to basically, it's a little brother. They make this light, it's about two or three bucks less. They make this light that takes a single AAA. 
and it's very bright. It just doesn't have, it doesn't last as long. Now it still has like one and a half hours of continuous light capability, and it's very very bright. And I didn't know uh, that they made lame ass non pockets in girl jeans. I didn't know that because I don't wear them. Uh, but ladies or guys with ladies that might have this issue, you can find that link down there. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to probably run that as my item of the day uh, for the first item next year in 2019. Because uh, again, I, I always thought, well, look, this thing costs about the same. It's longer. It lets me use it as a leverage tool, as a self-defense cubaton. Um, it's a little bit more natural in the hand. It only costs two bucks more or so than the short one. Why the hell would I have the little one? Well, non-pocket in girl jeans. Stupid. What did she say exactly? The lame-ass non-pockets they put in girl jeans. Uh, there's your reason. So, I didn't know. Ladies, I'll update that, but it's already there and you can find it. Either way, this light is the light for everyday carry, for not breaking the bank, not having a mortgage, a kidney to get one. Uh, are there better tactical lights? There are. Um, in, in my 72-hour kit... I carry a more upgraded, better light. If I was in some sort of an active shooter situation or something like that, uh, it would probably be the, you know, if I went into that bag, that would be what I would grab. Uh, but, you know, I want something when it comes to a light that's always, always, always there. The other thing I've always liked with, with any kind of an item that I consider like a prepper kit item, especially an EDC item, Is it inexpensive enough that when I see an opportunity, I can go, here, if you'll promise to carry this, I'll give it. And, and my two favorite things in the world for that are Gerber EAB little knife. Because I have so many people, what is that? That's so That fits so compact. And if you promise to carry it, and next time I see you, I ask you to show it to me, you're going to have it on you, I'll give you. And I'll do that with this light, too. I want my friends and I want my family to be as prepared as they're willing to. And I like little products like this, you know, six bucks for the EAB, 20 bucks for this thing, that I can be evangelical in my prepping. And so it serves that purpose as well. And then the other thing is, I lose shit. I'm just going to be honest with you guys. You guys think I'm like the major organizational guy or something? I'm not. I'm an erratic freaking entrepreneur. And I put shit down and I lose it. I've, if, if, you know, I heard a, a joke one time about, if you, you know, you get your stuff back when you go to heaven that you lost. And the guy's like, you know, here's 5,371 ballpoint pens. I'll tell you the biggest thing that's going to be there for me is freaking tape measure. If you get everything back after you die that you lost when you were around, I got a, a freight train car somewhere full of tape measures waiting on me on the other side. So I lose stuff. If I lose a $100 tactical light, I am pissed off about it. If I lose one of these, I know that sooner or later my wife will find it or I'll find it. I'll put new batteries in it and I'll stick it in the drawer and I'll keep carrying the other one that I bought or got out of the drawer and I won't get mad. So it's the kind of like, well, I like I buy four of these for one of those. And it's a damn good light. So if you need something for a Christmas stocking stuffer, the Streamlight is jack approved. If you have stupid non-girl pockets or whatever they are, then you can get the one with the single battery. Anyway, you can always help us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Now, song of the day. Uh, I went and called an audible again and went off John Adams' script. And sorry, John, I had to. Because today we talked about in the day of history, Elvis Presley got drafted. And he actually went and did his duty instead of, you know, dodging it like some people did. Just saying. Anyway, White Christmas. One of the all-time classic Christmas songs. And Elvis's version is just awesome. Don't need to say much else about it other than it's the king, man. Elvis with White Christmas. With that, it's been Jack Spierko helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I'm 
Your Christmas. 